all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm not in the studio this morning, so we can't take your calls, but you can always email the show at fit at mpbonline.org. With me on this show, recorded in advance, is Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell. Good morning, Josie. Uh, The show today is the alphabet of good health, so we're going to talk about topics that spell out the word healthy. We'll start with H. H is for high blood pressure. And I remember years ago, there was a campaign that called high blood pressure the silent killer. So obviously important to keep your blood pressure under control. Absolutely. And it's, it's called that for the reason that a lot of people don't know that they have it because it doesn't have a whole lot of symptoms in the beginning. But blood pressure, and and when it's too high, we're actually talking about the pressure inside of our blood vessels. And I like to think about our blood vessels like um, a conduit system, like a road. And there are destinations along that road, and those are our organs, right? So our heart is pumping blood out to all of our organs. Think about things like your brain and your kidney and your eyeballs and those kinds of things. And so when the pressure inside those vessels along that roadway stays too high, it is like ramming into each one of those organs. And over time, as that continues to happen, those organs are like, what the heck? You know, what what's going on? I've got to toughen up to be able to withstand this kind of constant onset of pressure. And we start to have what we call end organ damage, which just means the the end of the road where, where those vessels terminate, that organ starts to be damaged. And so from a kidney standpoint, Um, We start to see the kidney not being able to do its job as well as it's supposed to. And the job of the kidney is to filter out, um, you know, uh, waste products from our blood and get rid of excess fluid and those types of things. So when the kidney is not able to do that, then it doesn't filter as well. It also starts to let some things um, into the urine that it normally would catch and keep from from going into the urine like protein, which is not good um, in our our urine and our kidneys. That does damage. And the pressure inside the kidney also increases, which just further impairs its ability to filter and to get rid of those excess waste and excess fluid. And that can can build up in our system and we start to retain fluid um, and it can contribute to things like like fluid volume overload and congestive heart failure and all of those different kinds of things. Um, with like the eye, for example, that high pressure in the vessels feeding the eye can start to, to cause something called retinopathy. And a lot of times we think about retinopathy with diabetes, but there's also hypertensive retinopathy. And it just doesn't doesn't like that, doesn't like that high pressure there. And so we start to, the, the back of the eye starts to have some damage to it. We start to have some impairment in our vision. Um, so while that in and of itself may not be life-threatening, when we think about these other organs like uh, the kidneys, the brain, and those kinds of things. Those are the things that will ultimately lead to more disease, disability, and and death. So getting good control of that blood pressure uh, is really important. And the first step is knowing what your blood pressure is. And to use your analogy, it sounds like uh, if you were on the interstate and tried to hit the exit at like 65 miles an hour. 
<laughs> That's a great analogy, and it is. Your car would get damaged, uh, and the exit uh, ramp would get damaged as well. And so that's what's happening to our organs. Um, can we modify our lifestyle uh, to promote a better blood pressure? Absolutely. So we tend to focus on uh, nutrition a lot, and there are certainly nutritional strategies that help with uh, blood pressure regulation. Probably the most uh, kind of common one that people think about is salt and the role of sodium uh, in raising our blood pressure. And that happens because the more salt we have on board, the more water that we retain. If you think back to, you know, kind of biology class or even chemistry class, and you talk about trying to keep an equilibrium of things, uh, we don't want our blood to be too salty. And so when we, we eat a lot more salt, we also hang on to more water to kind of try and balance that out. And just more volume in, in that roadway system makes there be more pressure. Just like if there were more cars on the roadway, you know, there's more congestion, so to speak, in that particular area. Um, so, you know, watching salt and sodium is one strategy that can be used to help um, control blood pressure. And a lot of people think that means the salt shaker, you know, and not salting their food when it comes to the table. And that's absolutely, uh, you know, a worthwhile endeavor. But the majority of salt in the American diet comes from packaged and processed things. So think your, you know, your uh, seasoning mixes, your boxed meals, um, your uh, frozen dinners, those kinds of things have a lot of salt because salt is used as a preservative. And so it doesn't mean we can't have those things. And it doesn't mean, of course, that you're bad if you utilize some of those things. You know, we're all living in this kind of crazy, busy world and trying to get food on the table. But we want to try and balance some of those things out so that if we're using um, a boxed meal kit, maybe we don't use the entire seasoning packet. Um, or, you know, if we're able to afford the lower sodium varieties of things, uh, you know, grab those when you can and that kind of stuff. And, you know, if you do have a little extra time on the weekends, consider making some seasoning blends yourself, you know, that combine some of the um, flavors that are traditional to whatever seasoning packet you're, you usually use, like a taco packet, um, you know, things like chili powder and cumin and a little bit of cayenne if you like spice and some black pepper and a little bit of salt. But your homemade mixes will drastically um, reduce that. And if you're going to be having a frozen meal, then think about what you can add to that meal to fill you up that will be low in salt and, and sodium. So maybe that's a, you know, a, um, a steamable pack of veggies that you can add onto the side um, to kind of help balance that out. You know, you've taught me from uh, being associated with you on the show the importance of reading uh, labels at the grocery store. And if you if you start doing that and you look at the sodium, it really is surprising how much those processed foods and things, how how high the sodium level is. So I think that's one thing that folks can do is just look and then shop around and, and, and try to find those lower sodium levels on the, on the stuff they're buying. Absolutely. You know, so a kind of marker to go off of is how much sodium should we be having? You know, and so the, the general adult that does not have any kind of cardiovascular disease or diabetes or, or things like that should try and stay under about 2,300 milligrams a day. That's about a teaspoon. So when you pick up, uh, you know, a, a package and you look at it and it says one serving of something is 800 milligrams of sodium, that's a, a lot of sodium to kind of spend on that one item, especially if it's a, a, a small item, you know, um, soups uh, that are, are packaged on the, the shelf often are very, very high, and they often have more than one serving in them. Um, I like to keep some, you know, quick snacks at my desk for when I'm super busy. And, you know, a, a soup that you can kind of grab and microwave is a good option for that some of the times. But you got to be careful because I picked one up the other day and it looked like, I mean, I would eat it in one serving, but the the serving container said that it contained two. And so when I looked at the sodium, it was about 400 on there, which didn't sound too terrible. But when I think about the fact that I would probably down that whole thing of soup, now I'm at 800. So again, it's a trade-off. If that's going to keep me from going to, you know, a fast food restaurant and getting a burger and fries, which are going to have more sodium than that overall, it might be worth spending that sodium on it. But we should be at least 
thinking it through and going, is this really what I want to do, especially if you have high blood pressure? Got a couple of minutes left for our next letter. E is for exercise. And I know, again, we've talked about this on the show a lot. And to you, exercise is really get up and get moving. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be in the gym. It doesn't have to be anything formal. It's just movement, you know, simply not sitting and being sedentary so much. And it really ties back to the the letter before us with high blood pressure because exercise um, is another one of those lifestyle strategies that can improve blood pressure. Uh, But it's not just blood pressure that can be improved with exercise. It's blood sugar control. It's uh, depression and anxiety and stress. Um, it's even uh, sleep, you know, and can help us you know, get in a, and, and maintain a, a healthy sleep pattern. So there's there's almost nothing in our body that can't be improved with with exercise, even if it's uh, an arthritis. Right. You know, so a lot of times we go, oh, that hurts. I'm not going to do it. You know, and that's a, a normal reaction to it. Um, but we want to then look for a different strategy for movement because it is so crucially important that we move. And, you know, I, to me, one of the biggest benefits of is is just you feel good. I, you know, sometimes when I, I try to take a walk every day and sometimes you're like, man, I don't really feel like it. But once you get in it, it's amazing to me how much it improves really just your mood. Um, and so when we talk about Absolutely. exercise. Uh, we got about uh, two minutes left here. Um, yeah. Again, what, one thing that we've kind of stressed on the show is if you don't exercise a lot, don't go out and run the marathon. This is something that you can <laughs> ease into. Absolutely. And, you know, so I was working with someone last week on exercise and, you know, writing an, a goal and an action plan for that. And the initial goal, so she was uh, someone who had not been regularly active for a while, but wanted to start incorporating some movement. And so we actually set a goal for five days of the week for five minutes of, of walking. Uh, and she's timing herself and everything to see. And she said, you know, I just couldn't make it that full five minutes most days. She was like, consistently every day I was able to do three minutes and a couple of days I got up to like four and a half minutes, but I never hit that five. And I was like, you know what? I'm so proud of you for establishing the habit, right? You're up and you're moving. And so we just adjusted that goal down to let's consistently get four minutes right? So instead of trying to hit this goal that she's just not quite ready for, we just backed it down and we'll consistently work on getting four minutes every day, right? And then once we're there and comfortable and our fitness levels have increased, we can then go back to that original goal of five minutes and just continue to inch it, you know, inch it up, um, you know, a couple of minutes every time we do this, because it's, it's not worth hurting yourself or being miserable and not doing it. I'd much rather see you go slow and steady and win that race. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB, the number four car. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. for joining us on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm nurse practitioner Josie Bidwell, also an associate professor of preventive medicine at UMMC. Since I'm not in the studio this morning, Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell is with me for this pre-recorded show. 
Good morning, Josie. We're providing tips and information about staying healthy and fit by spelling out the word healthy. And we're on to the letter A. And it's something that many Mississippians are unfortunately familiar with. A is for allergies. Uh, What causes an allergy? Well, an allergy is the body's response to an allergen, right? So it's something that we're responding to. And that can be a whole host of things that people can be, quote unquote, allergic to. So we can have food allergies. You know, uh, we hear a lot about things like peanut allergies and dairy allergies and those kinds of things. You can also be allergic to things that you put on your skin. So maybe a a fragrance or, um, you know, a certain dye in something you can have an allergy to. Um, or even metals, you know, there are kind of contact allergies to to different things as well. But I think probably what we're kind of aiming for here is kind of those seasonal allergies, that allergic rhinitis type situation where we have itchy, watery eyes, um, runny, stuffy nose, sometimes even a scratchy throat, sneezing, that kind of stuff. And that is largely um, a response to some type of plant allergen, some type of pollen, whether it be grass or ragweed, juniper, those kinds of things um, that we're uh, responding to. And, you know, it's it's so variable among people, you know, uh, about this time of the year, and we've seen it a couple of times so far this year, you go outside and your car has this lovely um, yellowish green dusting that has occurred during the night. And some people re- you know, respond to that increase in pollen in the air very, um, very robustly. Some people it doesn't bother as much. And then there's also things like you know, dust and um, pet dander and those kinds of things that we can have allergies to. So do we know why some people seem to suffer more from allergies than others do? Well, there's a a genetic component to some of it um, because there's kind of the the three conditions that run run together. We call them atopic conditions, and that's things like allergic rhinitis, um, eczema, so that kind of dry, scaly skin that itches and flares up, and asthma. Those things kind of run in a, in a, a pack together. And so those individuals um, tend to be more sensitive to allergens, and that can run in families. Uh, so a lot of times, you know, we'll ask, you know, does anybody in your family have eczema or asthma or problems with allergies? So there, there does appear to be, you know, some form of genetic component to why some people just have more trouble with this. Uh, And then there can just be, um, you know, if you're not familiar with an allergen, you know, if you move to a a different part of the country that has a different type of of pollen circulating, those kinds of things may, you may be more reactive to some of those things. So uh, what are the best ways we have to control our allergies? Well, you know, I, I love prevention. So, you know, if you know that you are sensitive to these types of things, like you have a, a bout of seasonal allergies every year with the with the season change, usually that's more um, transition from winter into summer uh, to spring, and then more um, summer into fall type of of seasonal patterns there. Then we want to start treating that before you start having symptoms, right? So if you know that you're a seasonal allergy person, then, you know, month or so before we know that the pollen starts to happen, we want to start getting you on a kind of prophylactic treatment plan for that. Um, And usually the mainstays of treating allergies are antihistamines, right? Because histamine is responsible for, um, like if you've ever been stung by, you know, a bee or something like that, and it gets kind of puffy and red around that area, histamine is one of the things that, that does that. Histamine makes the little blood vessels kind of kind of leaky, uh, and so that's why it gets puffy, and that's also one of the reasons why our nose gets drippy and, and those kinds of things. So antihistamines are, are one option there. Um, there are newer antihistamines that are much better tolerated than some of our older ones. You know, the classic antihistamine is Benadryl, uh, but Benadryl also makes a lot of folks sleepy. And the folks that doesn't make sleepy have a paradoxical reaction to it, and it makes them kind of uh, hyper and like, like high strong a little bit. Neither one of those things are are conducive to being a, a functioning member of society on most days. So the newer ones, things like Zyrtec or Claritin, um, 
Allegra, Zizol, those types of antihistamines um, are considered a non-sedating form of antihistamine. Now, everybody responds to medicines a little bit differently. So if you've never taken one of those before, I wouldn't take it and then like go hop in the car or schedule a presentation or anything like that. See how you're going to do with it. Um, but that, that's kind of uh, the, the big class of medicines. And then the next um, kind of most commonly utilized would be um, a, like a nasal steroid, uh, like a Flonase or something like that. Um, and what people don't realize about medicines like Flonase is they take a little while to start to work and to produce kind of maximum benefit. They take about two weeks before you start to get really the full control of that. So it's not, oh my gosh, my nose is stuffy and my and itchy and drippy. Let me squirt this in here and I'm going to be fine in a couple of hours. That's why we say start this, you know, uh, a month or so before allergy season uh, starts so that you're able to kind of have your, your armor on before the, the allergen starts attacking you. So we're on to the letter L, and I picked out LDL. Uh, so tell us, what is cholesterol? Well, cholesterol is a substance in our blood, and we all need uh, some cholesterol for some, you know, some biochemical processes that we won't dig down too far in. But there are different types of cholesterol. Um, there's uh, LDL, which you've chosen here for that L, and there's HDL. And what we really are concerned with is the amount of those different substances. So a lot of times people will focus on what their overall cholesterol level is. Because if you've, if you've gone to the doctor and had a cholesterol panel done, it comes back with several different numbers. It comes back with that total cholesterol number. It comes back with an HDL, an LDL, and then usually a triglyceride on there. For total cholesterol is under 200 is kind of how, you know, we like to think about it. But I am much more concerned with what those individual parts are, the HDL and the LDL. And the way I like to remember it and the way I talk to patients about it is HDL is actually good cholesterol and we want it to be high. Right. So you'll actually hear folks say well, that part of your cholesterol is not quite high enough. And that can be confusing for people because we tend to focus on lowering cholesterol. But that HDL, we want to be high because it helps protect um, our heart and helps keep those vessels nice and healthy. LDL is the kind of the opposite of that. So take that L and think about L, lousy, low. So it is the, the quote unquote bad cholesterol that is more likely to contribute to narrowing of the blood vessels and those types of things. And we want that number to be low. The levels we want people to be at are a little bit more individualized than we like to think about things. We take into account all the other host of cardiovascular risk factors, like whether you also have uh, diabetes, whether you're a smoker, whether you have high blood pressure, all of those different factors when we decide kind of what your LDL target should be. But a general kind of cutoff is about 100. We want that LDL to be less than 100. And I actually... Uh, really try to get folks as close to 70 as I can get them. And the reason for that is, um, you know, the more LDL that we have, the more likely we are to start to form um, some plaque in those vessels and start to develop um, atherosclerosis and kind of hardening of those vessels and narrowing of those vessels. And when we look at the scientific evidence out there about what level of LDL um, doesn't contribute to further laying down of that that plaque and narrowing of that artery, arteries, it's about 70. So if I can get people to, to 70, then I am at least kind of halting the, the progression or the, the further narrowing of that vasculature there. So do we have some medications available that are fairly successful in helping folks uh, control their cholesterol? Absolutely. So um, statin medications are the class that is utilized most often for cholesterol control. And statins get a bad rap a lot of times. Um, there you know, are some uh, associations between statin therapy and uh, muscle damage or muscle breakdown. Uh, so a lot of times people are, are very concerned about that. And it's absolutely something you want to work you know, look out for, but it's less common than, than we kind of give it credit for. And so, you know, if you recently start a statin and you start to have muscle cramps, muscle weakness, you know, changes in your urine color, that kind of stuff, absolutely let your healthcare provider know. But 
um, kind of fear of that happening shouldn't uh, stop us from utilizing statins because they are a wonderful uh, kind of tool that we have to help lower um, the risk of a heart attack or stroke. Because that's really what we're what we're after here is is to keep you from having a heart attack or a stroke. Um, you know, uh, statin medications, the the ones that you probably are familiar with, are things like Lipitor or Crestor. Um, or Pravacol, those are the, the more commonly utilized ones there. And they're best taken at night. Um, I mean, you can take them, you know, whenever you want to, but the, the pharmacology of them point to better efficacy when taken at nighttime. So that's usually when we recommend that you take those there. And, you know, we don't want to not work on our diet, uh, or the other factors of our lifestyle that can contribute to cholesterol just because we're taking a statin. Um, and a lot of times patients say, well, I want to try diet and exercise first. And that's fine. You know, I usually give folks about three to six months to, to try lifestyle um, modifications and see. And what I want to stress is that if it doesn't get us where we want to be, right, if you're making those good changes to your diet and you're exercising and doing all these, th all these things that we've asked you to do and your cholesterol is still high, please do not see that as a failure and go, well, you know, if I've got to take medication anyway, I'm going to go back to eating the way I was before. And that's just not a great strategy because while your cholesterol may be controlled with medication, the way that uh, you're eating that kind of standard American diet is going to contribute to other cardiometabolic diseases like high blood pressure and diabetes. You know, I myself take a statin medication. Um, I consider my lifestyle to be pretty well optimized. I eat pretty good, exercise, try and get my good restful sleep and work on my stress and uh, still had high cholesterol levels. And so at the end of the day, uh, we elected to start a statin and I'm tolerating it very, very well. And my numbers are wonderful, textbook normal numbers now. So that gives me just an added layer of security that I'm doing all I can to protect my heart. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm not in the studio this morning, so this is a pre-recorded show with no phone calls, but you can always email the show at fit at mpbonline.org. With me is Southern Remedy producer, Kevin Farrell. Good morning, Josie. We're giving out health tips and information today while spelling out the word healthy on this show that's recorded in advance. So we've made our way to tea. Tea is for tofu. I think a lot of people, myself included, have heard of it, but we aren't sure how to use it. So how do you add tofu to your diet? Well, tofu gets a bad rap uh, because it's often seen as just kind of tasteless and gooey. And it absolutely can be. The first time I had tofu, it was tasteless and gooey. But it depends on the type of tofu that you're picking as well as how you prepare it. So I think, you know, the kind of first step is to take a little step back and say, why would you choose tofu? Right. And so, if you're vegetarian or vegan, tofu is a kind of a mainstay of your diet, most likely, because it's a source of protein. So we're always looking for ways to add protein to our plate, even though you know, protein isn't something that just exists in meat or dairy, where we tend to think about it, meat, dairy, eggs. Um, protein is in 
a multitude of things. Uh, whole grains have protein in them. Even your veggies that you're eating have protein. Uh, beans, nuts, seeds, all of those um, are full of protein. But a lot of times we're looking for something um, you know, different than a bean or a, a nut or a seed. And tofu is a soybean product. So it's still coming from that, that bean. Um, but it is uh, kind of ground up and compressed into usually a rectangle or square shaped um, kind of block. And so one of the benefits of tofu over, let's say, a meat product is the fact that it's going to be cholesterol free. Right. Only animals have cholesterol. So this is from a soybean. So it's going to be cholesterol free. Um, usually uh, it's going to have some fat in it, but it's uh, not going to be saturated fat and those types of things. And because it is bland, it opens itself up to being flavored however you want to flavor it. And so really taking on whatever type of flavor you want to add to it. So when you're at the store, you will be shocked probably at the range of varieties of tofu that you see. And um, the way I like to look at them is the firmness of that. So you'll see words like silken and that kind of thing. And so a lot of times people think silken tofu is going to be very, very soft. And it can be. But there's also firmer varieties of silken tofu. So I just tend to focus on what the firmness is and let that dictate what I'm choosing it for. So um, a soft tofu would be something that I'm likely going to puree into something. So um, maybe I'm adding it to a smoothie to add some protein content to my smoothie, or I'm going to make like a pudding, right? You know, puddings are usually um, thickened with eggs, um, egg yolks and those kinds of things. Um, or, you know, some type of gelatin, which gelatin comes from um, animal bones usually. So if you're looking for, you know, an animal free way, then using a silken tofu kind of pureed with some melted chocolate and maple syrup and those kind of things can give you a lovely kind of pudding like consistency to have there. Um, but if you're looking for something that you're going to, you know, add to your plate to maybe uh, remind you of uh, a diced chicken or um, scrambled eggs, something like that, I tend to go more toward the firm or the super firm options on that. If I'm going to cut it up and dice it, I'm going with that super firm. Uh, and if I'm going for more like a scrambled egg texture, then I usually would go for um, just like a, a firm, something that I can crumble and it kind of looks like feta cheese almost. So Where I guess, people – go ahead. No, I was just going to say I guess uh, if someone is new to it and you're talking about the firmness, maybe just do some experimenting and, and see what works best for what you're trying to make. Yeah, you pretty much can't go wrong by choosing a firm or a super firm unless you're trying to puree it into something. And then that just doesn't puree. Puree, it's going to be grainy like like feta cheese. Um, where people go wrong is not pressing it. So tofu kind of comes sitting in some some water. Uh, and so you absolutely want to take it out of that, that package of water and drain it off, but then you want to press it. Now you can buy fancy tofu presses. I eat tofu a lot. I do not have a tofu press because I do not need another gadget in my kitchen that takes up space and needs to be washed. So, um, I just get a plate. I put down some paper towels on the bottom, put down paper towels on the top of the tofu, put another plate on top. And then I usually set like a big old can of like canned tomatoes on there to press it. And you will see a ton of moisture come out of that tofu. And I usually do that for uh, about 20 to 30 minutes. Sometimes I have to change the paper towels um, at least one time during that. And that really improves the texture so that it's not gummy and gooey. And it allows it to suck up other things. You know, if it's full of fluid, it's not going to hold your marinade, so to speak. So getting all that extra you know, liquid out, then lets it act more like a sponge and suck up whatever marinade you're putting in there. And then I like to do mine in the air fryer. You know, I love my air fryer and it really gets it nice and crispy on the outside and chewy on the inside and makes a great addition to um, a stir fry or tossing it with a little bit of teriyaki sauce and, and kind of subbing for like a teriyaki chicken, that kind of thing. Um, I just, I love, I love tofu. 
This is Southern Remedy, Healthy and Fit, and we are giving you health information about how you can stay healthy by spelling out the word, you guessed it, healthy. So we are on to H. H is for headaches. Um, do we know what causes headaches? Well, there's so many different types of headaches out there, and they're going to have different causes, right? The the one that uh, a lot of that we tend to focus on are things like migraine headaches and the the science behind migraine headaches and what you know what really is going on at the the physiological level has grown leaps and bounds in the past couple of years and we've started to see um, much more uh, progress in terms of the medications that we use for migraines in the in the past it was very much like the triptan class of medications like imatrex or Maxalt, something like that, that is an abortive. It's kind of stops the migraine attack when it starts. Um, and we're not as many kind of prophylactic medications. And the medications that were used to kind of prevent migraine attacks were medications that were kind of borrowed from other medical conditions. Um, there were some blood pressure medicines that were used, things like propranolol, um, some of the calcium channel blockers, um, some of the anti-seizure medications like Topamax um, were used for migraine prophylaxis. But now we have kind of this class called CGRP um, blockers that are being utilized for migraines. And that has to do with some of the, the chemical changes that are happening um, along the blood vessels and, and in the brain when that happens. Not everybody has migraines. I do uh, have migraine headaches, and so I'm well-versed in in what my triggers for migraines are because there can be lifestyle-like factors that contribute to things like migraine headache. Um, it can be certain foods, uh, fermented foods, alcohol. Um, for me, it was artificial sweeteners uh, like uh, like Equal and Sweet and Low and those kind of aspartame type things um, triggered off my migraines. And dairy also uh, was a migraine trigger uh, for me. Um, so every kind of migraine sufferer knows kind of what their their triggers are. And then there are your more kind of common everyday headaches, which are um, oftentimes a uh, fatigue type headache or a tension type headache, uh, especially if you work at a desk and a computer for long hours, you may start to get tension in your shoulders and in your neck, which then lead up uh, into the, the muscles that support your head and will sometimes get that tension uh, type headache there. And, you know, we can work on that with things like um, getting up and moving at, you know, when you're when you've been sitting at the, the computer for a while, uh, different posture techniques and then different stretching techniques for um, for your neck and your shoulders to keep those muscles kind of nice and loose. And then there's also something called a rebound headache. And I, we see that when people kind of overutilize um over-the-counter analgesics. So maybe you have this kind of tension-type headache um, very, very frequently, and you start to take Tylenol or ibuprofen um, very, very frequently, and then you, you don't take it, and you get a headache. And it kind of creates this cycle of things that are happening. Like, I have a headache. I take this medication. I don't have a headache, so I don't take it, and then I develop this headache. So we have to break that that cycle in reducing the amount of over-the-counter medication you're using and then treating whatever the underlying cause of that is, if it's a tension headache, if it's um, dehydration, those kinds of things. Got a couple of minutes left in this segment, but this I think also refers back to allergies. That point that you just made is you when you have over-counter medication, you really have to pay close attention to the directions and to you know how it's supposed to work so that you don't maybe take too much or maybe even too little. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we tend to think about things that you can purchase over the counter or without a prescription as being um, really, really safe medications, you know, and by and large, they are safe or they wouldn't be where anybody can pick them up, but they are safe when utilized at the recommended amount and for the recommended duration. So, you know, um, and for the kind of the general public, right? So Tylenol is a, you know, a very common medication, but 
it's not great for the liver. So, you know, if you've got some liver issues going on, then there's actually a dose reduction on that. And it's on the label, right? You just got to make sure you read the label uh, and follow those directions. Because oftentimes we think, oh, two is two helped my pain, but I'm still in pain. So I'm going to take three, you know, um, and that's that's not a good strategy, especially in the long term. It's also why on over-the-counter medications, you'll usually see where it says if your if your symptoms last longer than X number of days, please contact your healthcare provider. And that is largely because you may be treating the wrong thing, right? You may be taking this thinking I'm treating this condition, but if your symptoms are lasting longer than that, it may not be that. Or these medications are not. Um, not really intended to be taken long term or kind of around the clock without consulting a healthcare provider to make sure it's not going to interfere with anything else you're taking or be detrimental to a body system. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. For joining us on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm nurse practitioner Josie Bidwell, also an associate professor of preventive medicine at UMMC. Since I'm not in the studio this morning, Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell is with me for this pre-recorded show. Good morning, Josie. We've been spelling out the word healthy, giving you some healthy tips uh, along the way. And we are to the last letter Y. Y is for yawn. Why do we yawn? That is a loaded question because it is probably one of the most um, misunderstood uh, phenomenons out there. And so I don't have a great answer for you. There's lots of different competing theories about you know, why we yawn and, and what it means. You know, kind of the prevailing theory is that, that we're tired, right, and that we need to kind of uh, take in more oxygen, expand those lungs, do those kinds of things. And then there's also the the fact that it's contagious, right? And when we see somebody yawn, um, we we also tend to yawn, sometimes just talking about it. So I'm really, I'm impressed with myself that I have not yawned while we are talking about yawning. Um, but by and large, it's just a, a kind of a normal process of, of your body. Now, there are, you know, some disorders out there where we have kind of excessive yawning and those kinds of things, and some medications can cause that. But by and large, it's just one of those one of those things that happens. Uh, to me, the champion yawner in the animal kingdom has got to be the house cat. Oh, they do some good yawns. And, you know, I've got two two kitties and they I am continually impressed with their ability to fall asleep. Like they just go from full on attack mode to yawn and pass out. They, I, I would like to be a cat, I think, when I grow up. So uh, we'll transition to uh, talking about sleep hygiene. And I know this is one of the topics that we talk about on the show that is near and dear to your heart. So let's go over some things uh, to do. And sleep hygiene, I guess, means just, you know, the routine of sleep and that sort of thing. So uh, what are some first things to think about when we try to think about getting a good night's sleep? Well, I think where we go wrong is that we think of sleep as this very passive thing. Like we just go to sleep, you know, and for some people they do, you know, for some people they're channeling their inner house cat and they can just lay down and go to sleep. But by and large, most folks are going to 
get better quality sleep with the correct duration with some planning. So just like anything, when we're working um, to achieve something that we want to, that's important to us, we got to kind of plan the steps to do that. And planning out steps for sleep is really setting yourself up for success. So don't just kind of burn your candle at both ends until you're just exhausted and then just collapse. You really want to think about how sleep is an important part of your day and start to put things in place. So having a bedtime is one of the best things that you can do, a consistent bedtime and wake up time. And so knowing kind of how many hours of sleep you need to get is a good place to start. Um, Seven to nine is where we consistently see, seven to nine hours is where we consistently see the best health outcomes um, as you know, in terms of mental functioning and heart health and weight management and all these different things that seven to nine hours. And so if you're trying to decide what your bedtime should be, you got to think about what your wake up time is. And so if it is a, if there's no wiggle room on it, like for me, I got to be out, I have to be out the door at 7.15 if we're going to have the kiddos to school on time. So my wake-up time has to be very consistent to be able to get up, get everybody ready, and get out the door by that time. So adjusting my wake-up time is not an option for me. So I have to then count backwards from my set wake-up time to determine when I need to be in the bed, right, to get that seven to nine hours. And once you have that, then you got to go, all right, what do I need to do in the hours leading up to that bedtime to ensure my success of going to bed at that time? And, you know, melatonin is kind of that buzzword that's out there as it relates to sleep. Um, it is a naturally occurring hormone in our body um, that is um, kind of released from the pineal gland. And we want to help support our body's ability to do that. So instead of taking melatonin, although there's nothing wrong with that, if it's been you know recommended to you by a healthcare provider, we also want to support the natural release of that. And so a dark room is one of the absolute best ways to do that because our brain has this kind of internal clock so that it, it knows when things are supposed to happen, when different hormones are supposed to be secreted and all of that. And the presence of light is one of the things that sets that clock, right? So that before electricity, and when it was light outside, we were up and functioning. And when the sun went down and it got dark, that was our brain's cue that the, the work for the day is done and that we should start to be transitioning into sleepy time and relaxation time. But now, is just light everywhere, right? There's the TV, there's your cell phone, there's your laptop, there's your overhead lights, there's lamps. You know, there's just a multitude of light um, you're being exposed to at all hours of the day and night. And so our brain gets a little bit confused there and we're not quite sure when we're supposed to kind of squirt out that melatonin that helps us uh, sleep well. And so Dimming the lights as the sun starts to go down is one of my kind of initial things that we work on. So um, because it's cueing your body that the, the sun has passed over the, the, the high point and we're on the downward swing of daytime. Um, so if you're lucky enough to have a dimmer switch, you know, start to dim those things. If you're not, consider cutting off the big overhead lights and, and using more task lighting like lamps um, or little can lights, those kinds of things, just to start to lower the kind of overall light input. And then about 60 minutes before that bedtime that you've set for yourself. So if I need to be asleep by 11, then I need the TV and cell phone um, to go off at 60 minutes before that so that my brain has time to adjust to that decrease in light um, and is able to, to slip into sleep a little bit easier. So, you know, uh, I'm proposing that we change the word bedroom to sleep chamber. And then while it sounds maybe too sci-fi, <laughs> that's really that's all we really should be doing in that room. Yeah, absolutely. So the bedroom is really for sleep and sex only. And we tend to, because it's our safe place usually, it's our comfy 
place. Um, you know, it's where we've got nice fluffy pillows and, and blankets and, you know, these kinds of things that make us feel safe and, and relaxed. Um, but when we continually use it for other things, we're not cueing our body that it's bedtime. So if you are not sleepy, you know, at your bedtime, you've done all the things and you know, you still can't sleep, it's best not to cut the TV on or pick up your cell phone or start to do other things in the bed. We want to get out of the bed and go to a chair somewhere, you know, uh, your couch, wherever, and get comfortable and do a non-stimulating activity. So, you know, maybe listening to some very relaxing music or um, reading a very calming um, book. But, you know, we don't want to start uh, doing something that's super mentally taxing at that point. And then when you get sleepy go ahead and put those things down and go back and get in the bed. What about uh, temperature of your bedroom, sleep chamber, as it were? It, that's very important as well. So another thing that helps us get to sleep and stay asleep is the fact that our um, kind of core body temperature drops and our extremities kind of kind of warm up. Our blood vessels dilate in our at the skin surface level and we start to lose some heat that way. And so the things that we can do to promote that, one is a cool room for that core body temperature, but then a blanket or socks or pajama pants or a long sleeve shirt, something like that that's going to make our extremities nice and warm so that those blood vessels dilate so that we start to lose some of that core heat that we have. That's going to help, help help us fall asleep and stay asleep, largely in part to it. It helps melatonin release as well. All right. Just a real quickie here at the end. Um, are you in favor of the snooze button? I never thought that that was a good thing. <laughs> it is not really a great thing because it's usually – um, signaling the fact that you're not getting enough sleep, especially if you're hitting it more than once, right? One time, okay, you know, you might not be somebody who just loves being jarred awake and having to immediately, you know, kick off and start your day. But when we see hitting the snooze button multiple times, it usually is pointing to some kind of sleep deficit that is keeping you from being able to be ready, at least on that, the second ding of your alarm to be able to, to get up and go. So if you find yourself doing that, then it's time to take a little bit of kind of introspection about what's going on with your sleep. And maybe you do need to to back that bedtime up a little bit so that you're getting better, uh, better duration of sleep. And if you feel like you're getting the right number of hours, then we got to look at that quality and see if there are things that are interrupting your sleep. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners. So if you can... Please contribute today at mpbonline.org. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org.